You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Okay, I didn't say this in the first gathering, and I meant to, um, so I'm going to say it here. If you're visiting with us, this is going to sound mighty charismatic. Uh, I am a charismatic in a seatbelt, um, so you're going to get just a little bit of that in me just now. So I prayed, and I, I, I don't always pray this, but you think I should. I, I, you, should you would think that I should always pray, God, awaken people to come to be there who need a word from you today. Get them here, God, kind of a thing, right? That kind of prayer. But I prayed that today. So if you're here today, um, there, there, there may be a word for you. Um, I'm hoping there's a word for all of us, because that'd be, you know, some of you are like, what if we were planning to come anyway? I mean, does the prayer not count for us? Um, it does, but specifically. And in first gathering, we had a remarkable number of first-time guests. Um, did we? Yeah, and, and lo- local folk, right? So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the Lord is up to something. All right, but, but I got a handful of announcements. First and foremost, if you are a teacher, you have a little gift from us because teaching is hard. And uh, for some of us, we're already in it. For some of us, we're going to be in it, and either way, when you're in it, you're going to be in it, if you know what I'm saying. So we have a little gift card for you to get a little coffee on us for the grind. If you don't like coffee, then you can get something else at Aromas. I'm sure they'll be happy to get that for you. Um, and just a little something, just to let you know we're thinking about you. If, you are, if your name is mentioned in the worship guide as a teacher, whether you are teaching in a public school environment, private school environment, homeschool environment, co-op environment, it doesn't matter you're teaching. So we wanted to make sure we, we saw you today. The other thing is, last week we asked you to join in on this partnership that we have with Column 15 Coffee Shop. They sought us out to partner with us as a church to provide backpacks and supplies for some families in our community. Well, we invited the Village Initiative, who's an organization we partner with, to partner with us in all of that because they have a beautiful learning and literacy program where they provide books for children who can't always afford books so that they can cultivate a love for learning. We asked you specifically to give $13 for this book called Bug Writes a Book, a child's first guide to writing a book, written by a local Williamsburg native, a beautiful book supporting social-emotional learning, cultivating a love for reading and for writing. And it's really a sweet little book. And we said, hey, we only need 45 45 books, so $13. Well, you said, by the grace of God, you'll up that. So the generosity of God through you in one week was that we are able to provide 68 books. Praise the Lord, right? For real. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, So we're grateful for that. So we're going to hand those books out along with Colin 15 is going to bring the backpacks, the school supplies, and we're going to all meet at um, the neighborhood. We're providing all of this for one neighborhood in our community. So this isn't just an abstract, you know, hope we hit it kind of thing. This is for an actual targeted, like this for a neighborhood. So we're going we're gonna to do that, and the staff, we're going to meet there at 12. We have our staff meeting tomorrow, and then after that, we'll meet at 12 in the neighborhood with the village and with Column 15 and hand these books and backpacks out to these beautiful, beautiful students. Also, we are starting back our family prayer time, so if you want to participate in this family prayer time, by family, we mean one person at a time, right? So, like, we all are a family here, so... Grab these cards. These are the prayers for the week, Sunday through Saturday. You can grab those on the way out. Got a verse, and um, there's a name you can input, whatever name you feel that God's putting on your heart. But it helps you guide, helps guide your prayers. If you have littles at home, this is a good discipleship tool, a little little tool 
that'll help you teach students how to pray the scriptures. Praying the scriptures can be a beautiful gift. Because sometimes, let's be honest, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. We don't even have words to say. And so the scriptures can provide that for us. All right. Last announcement. Subversive witness. Scriptures called a leverage privilege by Dominique Dubois or Dubois Gilliard. Local pastor, not a local pastor, but a pastor in town. Uh, this was our third book for the Wilder Minds Reading Cohort. So our first book, The Loneliness Epidemic. Our second book, Attachment with God, uh, which explores attachment styles and our relationship with God. And then this third book, we are finally meeting tonight, Wilder Minds, in the building. The AC will be working by then completely, the one AC. And we will talk about the books. We'll discuss it. It's a lively discussion. So if you read a chapter, a page, the whole thing, any one of the three, please come and be a part of the discussion. It'll be a fun discussion. Now, what we'll also do is, as a community, we'll decide which author we want to meet. So I happen to know the author, so we'll decide which author we want to meet. And whichever author we want to meet, I'll arrange a time for the author to meet with us. Does anybody ever remember meeting my friend, Pastor Rich Vildos, during the last time we had it? Did you know that what's really cool is Rich was on Good Morning America uh, talking about his new book. Uh, he's a pastor in Queens, New York. He's a beautiful soul. And y'all, for four minutes, he laid out the gospel. It was like, it was something to see. Wasn't it, Fergie? I mean, it was something to see. So I encourage you, you can look on my Facebook page, scroll through, and you'll see where I shared it, where Rich is. Um, check that out. Uh, God is doing beautiful things through their church family in Queens and just through his gift of writing. He has a new book out. It's a great book. We'll probably include that in the reading cohort next year uh, just because we, we probably should. All right. Got a lot of stuff up here. So we have been in this series called Withness is Our Witness. Everybody say it. Withness is Our Witness. And we've defined withness as presence in proximity. What we're trying to say is that there's not a whole lot we can do out there, but there's something we can do within people within our reach, right? And too many times, churches are trying to facilitate programs when churches are actually called to facilitate presence. We're to be with people. With people just as they are, not as we think they should be, because as Brennan Manning, Brennan Manning always says, who among us is really as we should be? Right? People are not problems to solve. They're not projects to fix. They're not prospects to save. They're persons to be embraced just as they are. That's the call of the gospel. That's the beauty of Jesus. Thanks be to God. That's how God embraces us. And then that kind of withness has the power by the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out to make us who we can be. And we've been looking at Matthew 25 every week up until about the last two because we've been in Luke 5. We're going to swing back to Matthew 25. But we remember the words of Jesus where he says, I was hungry and you what? Come on. I was thirsty and you what? I was naked and you what? I was sick and you? I was a displaced stranger and you? Took me in. I was in prison and you? And then he says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did what? Everybody say to me. Not for me, you did to me. That, as Mother Teresa would say, when we see people in poverty, we're seeing Christ in distress. Speaking of distress, we got word that we are now receiving a beautiful family from Afghanistan. That the family is coming our way. This family is a mother who is 35 with school-aged children, one boy and two girls, I think 14, 12, and 8, and should be here within the next maybe couple of weeks. And Bob and Catherine are leading us faithfully in that charge. 
We have eight teams organized to love this family and welcome this family. We're working with 3 Restoration to provide the housing that is necessary for this family. It's going to be a long road. We already have about $7,500 sitting out waiting to serve this family. It's going to take more than that. So we're going to ask you from time to time to give $13 more every now and then to be able to provide the kind of love and care for this family because I was displaced and without a home and you what? You took me in. Despite a thousand years of generational heritage in Afghanistan, this family, due to the tragedies of war and violence, has to leave generational home to find a new home. And we are a people who have found our home with God. We are a people who have a home. And we are called to open all of that up to someone who doesn't. And I'm grateful for you having the courage and the faith to be willing to do that. Because that's what Jesus meant. You know why? Because love doesn't look away. Everybody say, love doesn't look away. Love doesn't look away. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about, this is going to sound so cliche, and gee, I'm going to talk about the love of God. Like, I want to talk about God's love. And the danger of talking about God's love is that we're so familiar with God's love that you might go, oh, I know about God's love. Well, then let's remember the impact and the meaning, and the purpose of God's love and what it means for us in every possible way. Luke chapter 5. We've been in that chapter uh, for a minute and we're going to close it out this week and next. Luke chapter 5 verse 27. Afterward, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. So Matthew got up, left everything behind, and followed Jesus. Then Matthew threw a great banquet, a party for Jesus in his home. A large number of tax collectors and others, everybody say others, others, sat down to eat with them. The Pharisees and their legal experts, let me pause, remember the Pharisees are political religious leaders, not just religious leaders, political leaders, the, the, the legal experts are attorneys, so you're talking about the politically powerful and religious elite. So, verse 30, the politically powerful and religious elite grumbled against his disciples. They said, let's all read it together. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I did not come to call righteous people, but sinners, to change their hearts and lives. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tax collectors. Tax collectors are Jewish countrymen and women, are Jewish countrymen actually, uh, and they work for Rome. They are allowed to take whatever they want from their countrymen so much, as, so much as they take what is required of Rome. So as you would imagine, they're enemies of the working class and they're traitors of their countrymen. That's a tax collector. So this isn't an IRS agent. This is something far, far more um, difficult and disturbing than that in this vocation. They were usually very wealthy. Then there are sinners. The Bible calls them sinners. When we say sinners, we normally mean morally questionable people. We mean bad moralities, bad behaviors, people behaving badly. To be a sinner in Jesus' language is to be a lawbreaker. What law did they break? The law of Moses. So when you're called a sinner in Jesus' day, you're publicly labeled a sinner because you're understood to be someone who broke the law. You broke the law of Moses. Now, you might have questionable morals as a result of that, but you broke Moses' law. You are a lawbreaker. It helps us to think of it in terms of lawbreaking rather than just bad behavior. Because now these folks are labeled as lawbreakers. 
And so Jesus is keeping company with traitors and lawbreakers. Jesus is having a party, a banquet, with tax collectors and lawbreakers, a crowd of people mixed with the left out and the kept out, a people with questionable morality. And it seems like this that has led us to say when we read the Bible, it's led us to say and even to write songs that God is for us. And that's true. But God is only for us because God is always with us. And you see here, in a way, no more evident than we could possibly find where the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, God who is Jesus, is with and keeping the company tax collectors and sinners. And if we were to be thoughtful about how we read the scriptures, we would remember that there's really never been a moment when God hasn't in some way been with humanity. It just becomes very obvious and frankly undeniable when we see Jesus here. Which is probably what made John, one of Jesus' disciples, in one of his letters he wrote called 1 John 4, or 1 John, and then in chapter 4, verse 8, say that God is love. Everybody say, God is love. John said, God is love. This isn't John's attempt to describe God as loving. If he wanted to do that, he would have said, God is loving. He might have even said, God is faithful in love. This is a John speaking of love as sentimentality. If he wanted to speak of love as sentimentality, he would have said, God loves you. But he didn't say that. He said, God is love. Like before God is anything else, God is love. Before God is holy, before God is just, before God is righteous, before God is merciful, before God is faithful, before God is anything else, God is love love. God has always been love. There has never been a time when God hasn't been love. There will never be a time when God will not be love. So John says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And maybe John's belief that God is love was made certain because he saw what God is with his own two eyes in Jesus. And when he saw Jesus keeping company, with tax collectors and sinners. And Luke tells us that John is with Jesus in this room. When you read up above, when Jesus has called John to go with him, John saw this and all of its scandal and had something to say later on when he said, God is love. Jesus keeps company with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus comes for the wounded and the hurting. The liars and undeserving. He comes for the terrorists and the thieves and those who don't believe. Jesus comes for the written off. And for those holding the pen, deciding who's written off. Jesus comes for the rich, the poor, the powerless, the divorced. He comes for the widow, the child, the religious elite, and anyone who's been kept out. Jesus comes for the ones caught up in unjust systems and the ones scarred by the sins of the unjust. Jesus is found with all of humanity, the so-called best of us and the so-called worst of us. God is love. That's what John says. And since God is love and God is Jesus, then Jesus must be love. Jesus must be love, and it's, it's a kind of love that moves beyond sentimentality. 
to sacrifice. It's an all-embracing, scandalous love that leaves the politically powerful and religious elite disturbed and perturbed, right? Contrary to the popular word on the street and all of the pride-based systems of exclusion that society creates, God's love welcomes all. God's hospitality is greater than our hostility. God is love. There's never been a time when God hasn't been love, and there will never be a time when God will not be love. No matter what the preacher says, the pastor says, the church says, or the statement of faith says, God is, has always been, and will always be, above all things, love. And every attribute and characteristic that we come up with to describe God's presence in the world, holy, just, faithful, merciful, all flow out of a character formation and belief that God is love. Now, there may be times when we find this kind of love and divine hospitality discomforting and disturbing. Now, if we're, if we're being reflective, like I can get down with Jesus welcoming the wounded and hurting, but the terrorists and the thieves? It's a little hard. I can get down with Jesus welcoming the written off as long as I agree with those he's welcoming. Right? I may even be able to get down with Jesus welcoming those holding the pen, deciding who's getting written off, especially if I was the one holding the pen at any given point in time. The truth is, for me, maybe for you, but for me, I find that my faith is filled with contradictions and paradoxes. Here's what I mean. I do love God with all my heart, but I can still disregard the love of God. I love and I can still hate. I can be open-minded and still be closed-hearted. I am trusting, but I can still be suspicious. I'm confident, but I'm still prone to fear. I'm honest, but I can still be tempted to brush aside truth. I want to follow Jesus and be nonviolent, but the world won't always let me in all of its violence. If I'm honest, there are times I want to be violent, but Jesus will never let me do that. The Jesus we have met, beloved, and are invited to see, loves us regardless of our state of mind or our disposition of heart. His love is never based on our performance or our mood. For real. Some of us moody. His love knows no bounds. No caution. No restraint. Jesus the Christ, full of grace and truth, puts on display an unrestricted, enduring love. And what we see in Luke chapter 5, when we read it in all of its fullness, is how this movement of withness, everybody say withness, withness, is actually born out of divine love and sweeps through Palestine. It's a love divine in origin and presence, and it's a verb kind of love. Everybody say verb kind of love. It's a love that does something, a love of actions and words. It's a love disclosed in Jesus. In other words, it's what love looks like. It's a love displayed by Jesus is what love looks like. It's a love declared through Jesus. It's what love sounds like. It's a love that hasn't changed because Jesus hasn't changed. 
The God who John says is love hasn't changed. And that is the problem we feel because the reign of sin and death at work all around us and sometimes getting at work in us tries to tell us that the love of God has changed. The reign of sin and death at work all around us that gets at work in us tries to tell us that Jesus might not be so willing. Jesus might not be so wanting. Jesus might not be so welcoming like we've talked about the last three weeks. When therein lies the struggle for us, that we sometimes struggle to believe the Christ who is God and who is love, and we sometimes miss the enduring, unrestricted love that Christ holds for us, and that would be hard enough. But then there are times where if we're honest, that we, humanity, including the church, have to look out and say that we're actually the ones who unknowingly circumcise God's love sometimes, right? Like we're the ones who sometimes impoverish God's love. We are the ones, the church, who attach conditions to God's love. We are the ones, the church, who diminish God's love. We do all of this because we allow God's love to be defined by either our experiences, other people's experiences, or our beliefs, rather than what we see in the Christ of Scripture. The one who keeps company with tax collectors and sinners. The tragedy is that we, humanity, including the church, have a long history of making caricatures of God. There's the hypervigilant God, always looking for where you go wrong. There's the uninvolved God, unconcerned with your consequences of your choices and the outcomes of your life. There's the pushover God, the one who doesn't care about your morality. There is the prejudiced God who likes the people or the nations that you happen to like. Well, that's a coincidence. There's the warrior God who justifies your violence. And we do not mean to do this to God, I don't think. But we do. And just like real caricatures, the caricatures caricatures of God we create may carry some elements of truth in them, but the details are so combined and distorted that the picture of the original person is no longer accurate. The caricatures no longer represents the true God that we see in Jesus. See, the God we see in Jesus Christ can correct the caricatures we make of God. The caricatures of God some of us were taught growing up to believe in. That gets corrected in Jesus, the person who is God in the Scriptures. The God we see in Jesus Christ is the God of unrestricted love who extends divine hospitality to all, who shows mercy and is moved by compassion, who demonstrates God's restoring justice in a world where punishing justice is primary. In Jesus, we can see the God who speaks candid and disruptive truth, especially to power, and speaks comfort to those pressed down by Him. The Jesus we see shows us a God who believes in the best of us because we're made in God's image and wants to transform us to be the best of God's image inside of us. The God we see in Jesus longs for us to let go of our tiny visions for life and hold on and grab God's beautiful divine vision for life. Where we put the ethics and the values of the kingdom of God on display in our lives. This is what we see in God who is Jesus Christ and we 
but we have to open ourselves up to him. We have to, we have to actually open scripture and see him. But to do so is to be changed. When the love of God hits you because of what you see in Jesus, it can change you. The politically powerful and religious elite ask Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. Beloved, God loves us when our hearts and minds are sick with sin. God loves us whether we are in a state of grace or disgrace. God loves us whether we live up to the standards of the gospel or not. God has come to us in Jesus and sees the good in us that we cannot see for ourselves. Sees the part of us beautifully made in God's image even when it is stained with sin. And when God's enduring unrestricted love hits us, we begin to heal from this sin sickness. We begin to change. The Spirit of God living within us opens us up to this divine love that gives and this divine love that tunes us in to what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. When the love of God hits you, you know when something is unjust. You know when something is wrong. You feel it in your gut. You know when something isn't good. But when we ignore that because of other ideologies or other beliefs, then we're resisting the conviction of the love of God. But when we listen to that love of God and we press in to right the wrong that we see, to promote the good instead of the ugly, to promote the truth instead of the lie, then we are participating, cooperating with the love of God that longs to transform us inside and out. We become more like Jesus because we spend time with Jesus. We begin to act more like Jesus, and the Spirit makes that possible too. And then what happens is we pass along to others what we have received. God's all-embracing love. And then this becomes a love that heals. And I know it's cheesy to say that love heals. I know there's been like 110 country songs written about it. I don't know if they're good, Glenn. I don't know about that now. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But they, but they try. But it's true. That's why Jesus said, the sick need a doctor. I've come to call him and to heal him. And he's doing it through an embodiment of love. See, in truth, in truth, if we are in tune with God's love, we can fine-tune our vision and begin to see the good in others that they may not even see in themselves. Come on now. If we fine-tune the vision of God's love, then we can hold out hope for others that society's written off. We begin to believe in new possibilities that only divine love make possible. We live in it, we, we have to, because we live in a society that is filled with one crisis after another. I mean, even God's love is called into question. We see lives taken too soon, bodies bruised by the brokenness of a world gone mad. We see failed dreams and unmet expectations. We live in a society filled with one crisis after another. And because society is made up of people of us, many times there's a person in front of us experiencing the crisis. Sometimes it's even us. 
And yet what we see in Jesus and what those of us who follow Jesus believe to be true is that when love is the response to a life in crisis, some kind of healing becomes possible. But when judgment is the response to crisis, healing is made less possible. When condemnation is the response to crisis, healing becomes less possible. But when unrestricted, uncautious, unrestrained love is the response to crisis, healing becomes possible. We've seen it in Jesus ourselves. And when we truly have seen it, we can't help but pass it on to somebody else. Because we mimic the God we believe in. And so if I'm passing on judgment in crisis, then I probably believe a God of judgment. But if I pass on love to a person in crisis, I'm bearing witness to the possibility that I believe in a God of love. See, that's why we can't talk about the love of God too much. Because we have a world so sick and in need of love, and sometimes our souls are sick too. It's love that heals. It's why Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. It's why He said healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. It's love that changes hearts and lives. And it's not a fickle or fragile love. It's not a conditional or controlling love. It's not a cautious or restrained love. It's a better love than that. It's a love that's neither fickle nor fragile, conditional or controlling. It's a strong yet tender love. It's a truth-telling yet comforting love. It is a love that is patient and kind, that isn't jealous or arrogant. It's a love that isn't pleased with injustice, but is pleased with the truth. Yet it's a love that refuses to keep a record of wrongs, even in a world of injustice. It is a kind of love that can change us. And it's unrestricted, unfailing love that we see in Jesus. And it's a love that cannot be stopped, cannot be controlled, cannot be boxed in by our prejudices or our preferences. But it is a love that can be denied. And beloved, I'm here to at least say to you, don't deny the love of Jesus. Don't. You're not going to find a better love. Ain't no man, ain't no woman, job, bank account, new child, trade in the old ones for new ones. You're going to find a better love. Only the love of God who is love can change our hearts and lives. Only the love of God who is love can actually heal us. That's what Jesus seems to believe. It's what Jesus has done. It's what the disciples confessed. It's what we say we believe. It's a love that doesn't look away. It's a love that presses in. And it always first presses into itself. I press into me. I have to deal with the contradictions and paradoxes in me before I think I can go about dealing with them in you. What we see in the witness of Jesus is this God who is love. We see how this love ignites and sustains movements, y'all. When God's all-embracing love is embraced, 
it transforms us. It creates a new kind of humanity. It helps us see the world differently. We now interpret the world differently because we understand it differently. In a world that says some belong and some do not, some should be written off and some should be held up, we say all belong and none should be written off. That's what we're supposed to say. And then we're not even supposed to say it. We're supposed to actually show it. we got to do it. Right? Because it's what's been done to us. Think about your worst moment. God didn't turn away from you. May have felt that way, but he didn't. Jesus kept company with tax collectors and sinners. I'm certain he'll sit at your table. He always welcomes you to his every Sunday. No one's turned away. And again, I know talking about the love of God could seem, oh, too basic, too elementary. But sometimes we miss the enduring, unrestricted love of God. We do. Just like we sometimes worship idols. Raise your hand, you ever found yourself bowing down at an idol? Right? I'd never met a Christian who woke up and said, Woo, Casey, I cannot wait to worship my idols this morning. Nobody does that. I've never met a Christian like that, but yet we fall into that trap in the same way. We make a caricature of God and sometimes miss the enduring, unrestricted love of God. When we don't, and we are a kind of community of Christ followers committed to a common life that declares and displays. Everybody say declares and displays. Declares and displays the divine love among ourselves and toward a watching world, a movement change, a movement happens. It's this kind of love reflected in Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Because when love sees hunger, it provides something to eat. When love sees thirst, it provides something to drink. When love sees a neighbor displaced, it takes them in. When love sees a neighbor without clothes, it provides them something to wear. When love sees the sick, it takes care of them. When love sees someone alone, in prison, abandoned, it visits them. It's what love does. Because Jesus has done that. It's who Jesus is. It's who God is. Because God is love. So I've spent, I don't know how many minutes, let's just say 10. It makes me feel better. Don't judge me. Reminding us that we are loved because God is love. Now what I want you to do is I want you to think of the one person that you don't want to love. I want you to think of the one person that you don't believe should be loved. I want you to think of the one person that you say you love, but you know deep down in your soul your prejudicial God won't let you love. I want you to think about them for a moment. And I want you to see Jesus keeping table with them. I want you to see Jesus laughing with them, eating and drinking with them. I want you to see a seat at that table with your name on it. And I want you to ask yourself, are you going to be willing to take a seat at that table? 
And if for some reason you can't, then lean into the Christ who looks at you and says, I get it. I love you anyway. Let my love heal you. And one day you will. But let the love of God bring the healing that God longs for you to have. And if you say, well, what does that even mean? Love heals when we commit our lives to learn how to love. It's in love, by showing love, that love heals. It's being mindful that the Lord of this table is still the Lord who keeps table with tax collectors and sinners. And there is nothing you have done or could ever do that would keep you from this table. The only one who can keep you from this table is you. Not another living human being will or can, and Jesus certainly never would. You are welcome to this table where Christ is Lord, where the bread is the body and the cup is the blood, where the love that God has moved from sentimentality to sacrifice, where you are welcome, beloved, just as you are, not as you should be, because after all, as Brendan Manning says, who is who we really ought to be. But when you come to this table with your heart and hands open to love, the Spirit of God will not allow you to leave unchanged. There will be an invitation to transformation if you will cooperate, participate in the God who loves you in learning how to love others too. To love as you have been loved, Jesus said. To forgive as you have been forgiven, Jesus said. To welcome as you have been welcomed, Jesus said. Because while we were all enemies of God, Christ came for us and made us family with God. So beloved, all of you are welcome to the table. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.